Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Welcome to Talks at GS. I'm Richard Manley, Head of Global Thematic Stock and Environmental, Social and Governance Research, and I'm honored to be joined today by Dr. Siddharth Mukherjee. Dr. Mukherjee is an Assistant Professor at Columbia University Medical Center in New York City. He won the Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction for his magnificent book, The Emperor of All Maladies, A Biography of Cancer. Uh, it became the basis of a documentary by Ken Burns, his most recent bestseller is called The Gene, An Intimate History. Sid, thank you for oh, joining us today. My pleasure. My pleasure being here. You're a practicing oncologist, a research scientist, a prize-winning author, a government advisor, a board member, husband and father. Can you just give us some perspective on, on what drives you to, I say, pursue so many interests, try and answer so many of the most pressing questions that we face today as humanity, and, and the drive to do it so well. <laughs> well, um, first of all, thank you for, for naming all my professions. Um, uh, the, the, the secret that you have to know is that everything is constantly falling apart. It's, uh, <laughs> in front, the building looks okay, but in the back, the, the building is constantly falling apart. But, um, you know, I, I, if you, it, it, the, the, the projects seem dispersed but there really is a central question in all the projects, and that is to provide and understand for myself the landscape, the changing landscape of human health. Um, why are we here today? What's going to happen 5, 10, 20, 15, 100 years in the future? Um, how can we accelerate the parts that are necessary to um, the, the, you know, what I would call the emancipatory parts the things that will bring human benefit? How can we suppress the things that are blocking the way towards those? Um, and how can we evaluate carefully uh, and not repeat the mistakes? I mean, you know, in, in a fundamental manner, um, I'm interested in the structure of knowledge. Um, how do we learn things? Once we've learned things, what would we do with that information? Where do we make mistakes? Um, how do we not repeat them? But, the, but, but so the, 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 it seems like it's all dispersed. But the series of questions is the same. You know, what's hap what, what is the landscape of human health look like? Um, and how is it changing? What will happen, as I said, 10, 100, 1,000 years from now? Okay. Well, let's get into one of those big themes. Um, 4,000 years ago, um, doctors of their day concluded that there was not a cure for cancer. 500 years ago, I think it was attributed to black bile, a substance we subsequently never found. Uh, 100 years ago, the treatment norm was very aggressive surgery. And in the last 100 years, we've experimented with and seen, I think, varying degrees of success, management, even cure, uh, with radiotherapy, chemotherapy, targeted therapies, increasingly a more holistic approach through prevention, detection, uh, and most recently, immunotherapy. And it is now becoming increasingly normal to hear the notion that there may be a cure for cancer on the horizon. I'm interested, what's precipitated these advances in science and, and how far are we away from the notion of a cure for cancer? Well, so I think, you know, we've, as you know, this word cure has been a fantasy um, for so many decades, so many years. We've talked more, you know, so, so much in depth about it. 
I think the I think we need to think about cancer as a kind of portfolio um, or a kind of uh, um, a series of approaches, and 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 realize that it's not going to be one approach. The first thing is that. Um, we will try to prevent as many cancers as we possibly can. Um, we used to be unable to do that very well, partly because we didn't know many of the causes. I mean, if you, I mean I'll give you a, a surprising idea, surprising to many. Um, since the 1980s, um, we have not really found a major human chemical carcinogen um, of, with major human impact. Um, just, just think about that for a second. So the last one was tobacco smoke. There are many that we found, but there's been very few major human chemical carcinogens um, which can be removed from our behavior with substantial impact. There, you know, there are many with small impacts, but with the, the kind of substantial impact. So our understanding of prevention was halted at that place. Um, now we're finding surrogates. We're saying, you know, maybe they're tens of thousands of chemical carcinogens which, with, with small impact, kind of a death by a thousand cuts, or maybe there are intrinsic reasons that cells become uh, cancerous. It uh, has nothing to do with the environment. They have to do with when cells make copies of themselves, like any copying machine, they make errors, and those errors are mutations. Those mutations cause cancer. So even if you took many of these environmental carcinogens away, you would still be left with, uh, with cancer because of this intrinsic copying mechanism. So if that's the case, how do we really think about prevention? Well, we've started thinking about prevention, think, saying, well, maybe they're surrogates. Maybe cancers grow in certain kinds of environments. If you don't have those environments in the body, they won't grow. Well, what are those environments? We now know that inflammation is one of them. So rather than focusing on, on the proximal causes, some of which we can't prevent, you can't stop your cells from dividing, why don't we prevent the body um, from accepting a, the, the growth of a cancer. So, the, so that's just to tell you that the whole world of prevention, to some extent, we've turned upside down. The second, I'll, I'll give you a second example. Um, we used to think about uh, early detection in terms of you know, imaging, mam mammography. Um, there's an estimate that you know, if you did mammography on the general population, uh, on, on women, you would probably save, on the general population, you'd probably save a woman about five or six days of her life. Um, that's the minimal impact of mammography. Well, now um, we're doing a very different kind of idea. We'll talk a little bit more about it. First of all, identifying people at risk, saying, well, doing screening in the general population is a Bayesian problem. Uh, if you have a very low probability of, of having cancer in the first place, whatever you detect is likely to be a false positive than a, than a real positive. Um, this audience should know this more than anyone else. Um, so should we purify upfront, increase the Bayesian probability that you, you will rather have really have cancer rather than a lump that actually does not need, is not malignant. And, and, and similarly, biopsying in the blood, liquid biopsies, trying to find tracking cancer before cancer occurs. So in every arena, prevention, screening, um, new therapies, immunological therapies, we're slowly turning the dials and turning it on its head. Um, and there are new insights that have emerged from that. And we're, we're trying to not repeat the, uh, repeat the missteps and uh, pitfalls of the last century of cancer. I think it'd be helpful to tie that into also now genetics. But yes. similarly, 150 years ago, we, I think, started to see the first studies leaning towards what we now understand is genetics. Yes. Since then, we've identified the genome, DNA, genes. We've built machines to read them. Uh, and are now on the brink of potentially being able to correct 
yep. um, genetic defects. Uh, again, what, what's facilitated that advance and in, in a relatively short period of time? And how do you envisage the advances are going to start to trickle now into application? Well, so the, so the you know, when I think about um, the, the, the long history uh, of genetics and, and then concentrate on the recent history, um, I think two or three things happened. Um, one is that we learned to, um, if you speak very broadly, um, um, we learned to read and write um, the language of genetics. Um, by read, I mean first we began to decipher what the alphabet was, and that's just gene sequencing. Of course, the alphabet, deciphering the alphabet doesn't ascribe any meaning to it. So we were stuck. By the 1990s and early 2000s, the alphabet was becoming clear. If you take your genome, the alphabet of your genome is written in four letters, A, C, T, and G. And um, we, I can tell you what it would look like. It would look, if you printed it on, a, on paper, it would be 66 full sets of the Encyclopedia Britannica. So this whole auditorium would be surrounded by your genome. But if I picked out you know, volume 17 and opened up page 37, it would be incomprehensible to me. It would read ACT, GCT, TCG. I'm, I'm making that up, but <laughs> I haven't memorized it. So three billion odd letters, um, and it would surround. So that was the first step of reading. Over the next few years, um, drawing on classical biology, we've started ascribing meaning. What does it mean to have this particular set of genetic variations? What does it mean for you? Why are you built the way you are? Why am I built the way I am? That ascription of meaning is, a, is what's going on right now. So this is truly reading, not just reading the alphabet, but ascribing meaning to individual variations in individual genomes. That's a big deal. That's, that's an important step. And we're, you know, we're progressively refining our capacity to enter that world. That's one. And the flip side, which I'll talk about in, in further detail, is writing. So since the 1990s, we began to do simple things to write. And the, the simplest thing that we started to do with writing is that we learned that you could take out a page from the encyclopedia, take out a piece of DNA from one organism, and stitch it together with a piece of DNA from another organism, and reproduce it and make recombinant DNA. That's very crude technology. It's like, as I said, ripping out a sheet of paper from an encyclopedia and engrafting that whole sheet of paper into a different encyclopedia. Not, not, not very user-friendly, as it were. Since the last five years, we've invented technologies that allow you, essentially, to go into a genome, including a human genome, erase a single letter in the encyclopedia, and replace it with a different letter. Um, why is that relevant? Well, that single letter may be the difference between you and someone who has cystic fibrosis. That single letter may be what's responsible for the mutation in the BRCA1 gene or the BRCA2 gene. Um, these technologies, so in other words, the writing of genetic information inside the genome, inside the encyclopedia, inside you, in an organism, has refined enormously. Um, so what we're now at the edge of doing is beginning to combine these two pieces of technology, the reading technologies and the writing technologies, in, in ways that I think are really interesting. So for instance, we were talking a little bit about this before, what if you wanted to make a new organism from scratch? Uh, impossible to do five, 10 years ago. Now, because you can read and write, you can interpret what the, you can interpret potentially what the sequence, how it will spring to life. And in fact, in early experiments, you can take a 
for instance, a living organism, a bacterium, take its genome out, its encyclopedia out, and replace it with something you've created yourself, written from scratch. Um, this is, you know, and these technologies are in early phases, and they're rapidly advancing. Synthetic DNA is rapidly advancing. Uh, making changes in, in genomes is rapidly advancing. So we are now being able to be fully facilitated in this language. And of course, I don't need to emphasize that this is the most important language in living organisms and potentially one of the most important languages we'll ever encounter. It's not English, it's not Spanish or French. It's universal through not just human beings, but through the, hum through the living world. Um, so you can make a virus from scratch, potentially, not yet, but very soon. There's no, there's no fundamental technolo technological differences. You can take a human cell and switch it out to a different human cell. You can take a blood stem cell, this experiment is happening right now, take a stem cell in the blood and change the gene that causes sickle cell anemia and reinfuse those cells into a person and the new blood will grow and it won't have sickle cell anemia anymore. Sim similarly for beta thalassemia. Um, and in principle, you can take, um, you can take uh, a cell that, is, that makes sperm and eggs and change the genetic information in sperm and eggs. Um, there's, there are fundamentally no barriers. I mean, you know, there are technical things going on, but the tools, the toolkit is ready. So tying some of this together, we, we now know the notion of we, we have several hundred oncogenes. Yep. They're prone to mutation. On occasion, there are triggers that can catalyze those mutations. On other occasions, they're random. Um, you know, a very well understood, I suppose, relationship would be radiation or, or, yep. or smoking, smoking. With, with cancer. But you know, if, you, if you had to propose a view as to the, the balance of cancer that is genetic, that that is environmental, yep. that that is random, where would the balance be? And to the extent there's environmental elements, which are the most likely elements of modern living yep. that we will be compelled to refine right. in order to manage cancer? Well, so this goes back to your second question. There's a debate raging through the world of cancer science right now to ascribe a specific number, even within range, to these two or three events. So take genetic heredity, take uh, viruses, take random chance, and then take environment, four categories. And the task is, for any given cancer, because it can't, you know, obviously you, can't, you can certainly make a generalization across all cancers. For any given cancer, ascribe to each of these four buckets the exact value that, of risk that's coming from the bucket. It's raging through the world of, of cancer biology. Um, the, the data for many cancers, for some cancers we know the data, uh, smoking-related lung cancer is an environmental risk. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But other cancers, like prostate cancer, like breast cancer, breast cancer is a great example, we really have found relatively little in terms of environmental risk. There's genetic risk, there, is, uh, there are no viruses that we know of, there's genetic risk, there's a potentially small amounts of environmental risk, and then the, the rest of it has to do with mistakes made during aging and copying of cells, uh, you know, cells, cells dividing under the influence of hormones, et cetera. You can imagine why this debate is very passionate. People, we badly want to believe that there are environmental carcinogens that we can remove, and therefore we will be cancer-free. And the answer is for some cancers, absolutely there are, there are environmental carcinogens. For other cancers, we've had a hard time finding them. And breast cancer is a great example. 
Um, you know, the risk factors for breast cancer include things like, you know, relatively rare environmental carcinogens. They, they do exist. Um, and so people are very passionate about it. And, and, and the, actually many communities of patients have been extraordinarily uh, disappointed and angry. Um, there's this idea that, you know, there's a conspiracy, uh, that we're hiding something, that they're, you know, they're really environmental carcinogens that we're hiding. The real reality is for some cancers, we haven't been able to find them. Um, we are stuck in a place where we have to accept that the fundamental mechanics of cells dividing and maturing and their risk um, is the risk. We're effectively at the point now, if I've understood correctly, where we're the first generation of humans who have worked out the maintenance and repair guide potentially for a human being. Right. I think, as I said, again, if you think about maintenance repair, again, there's a reading and writing problem there, right? So the, the manual is, is what you read and the fixer is what you write, edit and change. I think it would be an overstatement uh, to say that we're in, you know, we've fixed, we found the manual, we've found the lettering of the manual, we know the letters, mm. we're ascribing some meaning to the letters slowly. Um, I think for major things, for, for, for some small subset of genes that have major effects, we do know that, you know, we can potentially fix, study them, um, I, can, I can name them. Um, we're doing them right now, so Huntington's disease is one of them, you know, single gene mutation that causes a devastating neurological illness. We can look for that. Um, we, can, we, we, can, we can find it in, an, in utero. Um, you can find it long before the you know, baby is mature and you can decide not to carry that child. Yeah. You could decide to be genetically tested beforehand. You could only implant a, an embryo where the mutation is not present, so-called prenatal genetic diagnostics uh, or implantation. But that's the only gene we're solving for. We're not talking for height or, or any other element. No, no, genes. yeah, so, so, those, so single gene yeah. uh, mutations that cause really devastating illnesses are, are right up in front on the table. Um, they will, this, this will happen, the prenatal genetic testing and diagnostics is happening now. This is, uh, you know, and there are very, very few technical and ethical barriers there. Um, it, it, this has become a solvable problem, single gene changes. Now, multi-gene, so what I showed you, what I did show you is that most human traits, particularly normal traits, height, shape of your nose, the color of your eyes, the nature of your hair, you know, whether the density of your bones, your risk for diseases, most of them in common human populations um, are governed by hundreds to thousands of genes. Um, Doing prenatal genetic testing and implantation on thousands of genes is very tough. We just don't have enough combinatorial power uh, to, to do that. You would have to, you would, as an individual, would have to produce tens of thousands of embryos to select the one that had the right combination of, you know, you can imagine to find the one. But that said, you know, there might be things in, there might be sort of peripheries in this world where you could really do some intervention and potentially ethically damaging interventions. You could say that, I don't care about most of the genes of height, give me the six that are most, that have the highest uh, give uh, in terms of centimeters. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna worry about the other ones and I'll take a little risk, the other ones might be negative as it were, they might pull back, but I'll take a little risk and I'll take, um, I'll take the first four, the topmost four. Mm -hmm. Is that conceivable in the future? Yes, absolutely. In fact, I had an argument with, uh, I did a debate with someone on stage, a very important geneticist, 
I think hype might be the first one of the normal human traits where we start saying, gosh, you know, give me the top four um, and I'll take that, uh, particularly in cultures where a big premium is placed on, on, on height. Okay, maybe changing tact, uh, tack here to. I scared the bejesus out of everyone. <laughs> well, well my, but, you know, as I said, but remember, these are transformative right. technologies. The capacity to, to play with living information is totally transformative. It is like the beginning, it's like watching the beginnings of the computer revolution. You're in it. Imagine watching the beginnings of the computer revolution and participating in it. Imagine being part of it. Um, this makes, I think, for this generation, it's the most exciting thing we've done. I mean, it makes Facebook look like ch children's play. I mean, you know, this is the most exciting thing we're doing. We're changing risk. We're assessing risk. We are changing genetic information. We have the capacity to make new organisms, new molecules, a new universe, a new cosmos is out there to, to build. What are the most exciting things that you can see taking place in science today that give you confidence that uh, wishing somebody good health will, will be a very full gesture <laughs> where, where, where we can really start to see advances in, in, in human health and longevity for the long term? Well, I mean, look what's happened in the last 10 odd years. I mean, look at HIV used to be a death sentence. Um, you can, you know, I have a, I'm gonna end with an anecdote, uh, which I think is an important one. Uh, the first time I was a, I was a, I was a medical student, I, I met and treated a gentleman who had um, HIV, had AIDS actually, but then was under, everything was under control. And he came in, as you many of you know, many of these men and women now have relatively normal life expectancy. Um, uh, and for the first time, you know, you, you write a medical chart and this gentleman had come in for a standard, standard uh, cardiovascular, he had a heart attack, minor heart attack. And in, while I was writing the medical notes, I was saying, you know, 65-year-old man, blah, 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 blah. And some point of time, you have to write a past medical history. And I remember the kind of a chill that went up to my, through my spine when I said past medical history, HIV, AIDS. You could never write that. You know, in the 1980s, there was no one with a past medical history of HIV, AIDS. Everyone had a current medical history of HIV, AIDS, and they were dying of it. And, and there's a fantasy of, of all of us saying, to write past medical history of metastatic ovarian cancer, past medical history of metastatic breast cancer. Actually, with breast cancer, we're actually writing that. We're writing for the first time in, our, in, in human history. We're writing this woman had a past medical history or concurrent medical history of um, metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer. Here she, now she comes in for a tooth removal. You know, that, that should send a kind of chill up our spines. We took a disease that was uniformly lethal, and in our lifetimes, we made it livable with. Not true for, there's a lot of hype around this idea, not true for all cancers, but what a transformative idea to be able to say that to a person, you know, that's, that's one vision of good health. Well, let's hope there will be many more past medical, medical conditions exactly right. to, uh, to celebrate. Yes. Uh, please join me in uh, thanking Dr. Mukherjee for yep. this Talks at GS. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. This podcast was recorded on June 8th, 2018. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, 
as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.